Okay, today's scripture reading is from Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and it's found on page two of your bulletin. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? God, we thank you for your commitment to make yourself known to us. And you do it because you want to save us. You want to deliver us into your arms. And we pray that we might hear your voice and that you might work powerfully, even if our faith is just a small seed. In Christ's name, amen. In the wake of the uh, Kobe Bryant tragedy, there have been lots of different reflections, articles, thoughts, and one that I came across was reflecting on the shortness of life and the importance of mending our relationships. And the subject of that reflection were two other great basketball players, Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas. Uh, You may or may not know, I didn't know, that they had a very close relationship for years and years earlier in their career, but then for decades were estranged from one another. And at the urging of their families and friends and a little help from the NBA network, uh, they came together. And uh, it was a documentary that celebrated their careers, but at the end it got very personal and spontaneous when Magic Johnson said, um, if there's any way that I've hurt you, and at that point, Isaiah Thomas just broke down crying. And they stood up and embraced one another and sobbed in one another's arms and reconciled. And there you have these two great, talented, big men um, demonstrating reconciliation for us. And this is one kind that you hear the Christian faith talk about. When you've offended someone and you go to them seeking reconciliation. And then there's another kind that Jesus is talking about here. And I think it might be even more risky and take a little bit more courage. And that is when someone has offended you and you go to them about it. And here uh, we might get the picture, especially in light of this month celebrating African-American heritage, of the Freedom Riders who would march, the civil rights marchers that would go into these areas where they are 
uh, sinned against and oppressed and offended, but what they bring is a message of reconciliation and peace. And so Jesus is calling uh, those that follow him to move into an area of conflict with a message of reconciliation. We've been in this family of God series. Jesus talks family, and there's no family that doesn't experience conflict. Church is no different. One writer has said it this way, We strive to live by the law of love. Nonetheless, the church is a society of sinners. In fact, you have to declare yourself unworthy in a sinner in order to join the church. It is hardly a surprise, then, that sinners offend each other. Even apart from sin, we misunderstand each other. A loud remark sounds like passion and enthusiasm to one person, but like anger to another. A joke sounds hilarious to one, but it seems insensitive to another. So problems are bound to arise. So you see, the church is not defined by the absence of conflict, but rather its approach to conflict, how it handles it. And I think there's two temptations that Christian communities can fall into. One is to avoid conflict because the church is, quote-unquote, nice. The church is to be a place where people are really holy and good, so there shouldn't be conflict, which, of course, isn't true. But the other is to just simply mirror what's around in the culture. Snipey text, right? Snipey posts and tweets, accusing before listening. Alfred Poirier, who uh, has written a lot about resolving conflict in the church, it said, one of the things you notice in Matthew 18, the passage we just heard, is Jesus sets the conversation in the framework of family. It's a brother who offends. It's a brother who we seek to restore. It's God the Father who we seek to imitate. And toward that end, Jesus gives us two things. One is a process, and the other is a goal. A process and a goal. So let's look at those two things together. The process we find for conflict resolution in the passage. And here, there's five steps to this process. I'll repeat these words, so don't bother trying to get them in your head. But preparation, definition, initiation, mediation, and arbitration. And I think you'll notice all end in T-I-O-N. Jesus uses key words to unveil this in the passage. And so if you look at the passage, he first says, if. That points to preparation. Now, a New Testament scholar who has studied the book of Matthew a lot in Greek said that there's really a little bit more latitude with that word if in Greek. It sort of means if ever or whenever, meaning conflict's going to happen. Conflict will happen. Sin, when it enters the world, leads to inevitable conflict. That's the nature of it. And there seems there is no end and no number to the things that we can have conflict over, right? Maybe it's a bad call that a referee makes or a bad choice that a coach makes. It's whether it's this political party's fault or this political party's fault. 
And it goes down to in our, in our little world. I myself have fueled conflicts over things as important as what movie we'll watch. Who should open the first Christmas gift? <laughs> and probably my most distinction is uh, co- causing conflict during family prayer time. Where I would hear myself at some point saying, well, fine, we just won't have a prayer time. We won't read the Bible. You know, serves you right. Uh, at some point, you realize, hmm, the Corinthians had conflict over who baptized them. There's just no end. The reality, it's not if, it's when, so we need to be prepared for conflict. We need to be expecting conflict. The second one, after preparation, is definition, the word sin we find. Now, in the eyes of our culture, the idea of sin is outdated and laughable. But I think we can all get on board with moral offense, right, and doing someone wrong. This is what the Bible means. But it's critical we understand the definition of sin. Uh, The Westminster Catechism, an old theological catechism, says sin is any want of conformity to... That's lining up to the law of God or transgressing the law of God. We actually, I think both of those showed up in our confession this evening. Which means sin is not just a violation of my preference. Right? And we've got lots of preferences. Lots of law codes. Lots of little laws. Personal law codes like you don't read my new magazine before me. Or maybe you don't interrupt me on phone calls. Or when I talk, you must give my undivided attention. Or you should have the toilet roll come from the bottom and not the top. There's just no end to those personal preferences or cultural preferences. In some culture, it's don't look at someone straight in the eyes. Others, it's don't talk during movies. It's don't eat with the left hand. It's don't laugh with the mouth open. Lots of preferences that cultures have. And then the church, of course. Worship should be, uh, not be too expressive. Worship shouldn't be too stuffy. Preachers should preach verse by verse, line by line. Churches should have communion once a month. They should have communion once a week. All of these things have one thing in common. They're preferences. They're preferences. And so the question you and I need to ask is, has my brother or sister really sinned? Or have they violated one of my preferences? That's a key thing. Definition. And then thirdly, we have the word go. Initiation. Jesus does not give us the option to sulk, to stew, to be passive-aggressive, or to gossip in place of going. He calls us to go. But before we go, there's some wisdom we should deploy. One is, how serious is this sin? And how often has it happened? The scripture says love covers over a multitude of sins. And so grace should enable us to absorb things, to have a thick skin and a soft heart. But it might be a particular thing has happened over and over, or it's pretty serious, pretty egregious. And so we need to go. But when we go, there's another word we're told. We're to go to a brother. We're to go in a brotherly and sisterly manner like family would. Now, at that point, you might say, yikes. You know, I don't want to do conflict like my family did. I would raise my hand there. 
But what family we mean is going with um, an affection and a loyalty. And then also, Jesus speaks about going privately. Just you and that person. Proverbs 25 says, Argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another's secret, lest he who hears you bring shame upon you and your ill repute have no end. Going privately respects and honors the relationship together. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't times to have public confrontation when a sin is public. You see this in the book of Galatians where the apostle Paul confronts Peter over his, Gentile, uh, over his racism toward the Gentiles. But he does it for the benefit of other people to instruct them. And then lastly, as we go, we've got to go open. Three times we find the word listen in the passage. Now, you know, if someone's going to get me to listen, you to listen, they're probably not going to just unload on us, right? To listen means you inquire, you ask, you say, you know, is it possible that, you know, I'm misreading things? You're, you're, you're approaching the person gently, as Galatians 6 would say. You know, a, a wonderful example of this is the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, sin against God, God knows exactly what they've done, but he asks them questions. You know, who said that? Or who, why does he do that? Well, you know, it really preserves the relationship. It honors the relationship. And so we are called to go, but we go with wisdom. And if that doesn't bear fruit, we get to the next T-I-O-N word, mediation. Jesus says, take one to two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two to three witnesses. Now, this comes from the law of Moses, the Old Testament, and the, the goal was to avoid false and frivolous accusation. And these witnesses might be a witness to the offense that occurred, or they might be just witnesses to the mediation that's going on. But it's at that point, the church, uh, hopefully, you know, you then go find someone that that person trusts, another, and, and you go in a spirit again of inquiry, going humbly. You know, we, there's um, categories for this in the culture, intervention, right? Um, I, I remember seeing a funny scene um, in the, uh, the show Sopranos, which is about, you know, this mob family. And one of the guys in the family has got an addiction issue, so they decide to have an intervention. And by the end of it, he's on the floor and they're just wailing on him. You know, pounding. You could see they couldn't even for 10 minutes without it just exploding. This isn't supposed to be that. It's supposed to be three people to come in gentleness, listening, mediation. Several years ago, a pastor from a neighboring church called me up and said, we have one of your um, former members here that want to join, and I understand that there was a conflict um, so would you be willing to come and have me mediate? And so myself and two of our elders went and sat at a table, and this pastor mediated. And I'm not saying uh, there was full satisfaction. You know, in this life, we live with proximate things, don't we? Proximate reconciliation. 
But I honor the pastor where he was following this model to say, uh, I need to mediate. Would you let me mediate this for me to see that these folks have, that things are good enough here that they can join in good conscience? It was important. And then last one, if that doesn't affect, we're moving to what we might call arbitration. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, tell it to the church doesn't mean you're free then to gossip to everybody. Tell it to the church means tell it to the leaders. And that's uh, the phrase bind and loose, I'll get to that in a second, is referring to leadership. But even the leaders don't come in judgment. The leaders come again humbly, gently, inquiring. Maybe they're mediating between the two parties. And the leaders don't come presuming guilt. In fact, in this denomination, uh, we have a pretty specific book of church order on this. In fact, you know, sometimes I joke and say there's not many things that other denominations envy us for. But one thing they'll say is, man, you guys have a pretty good process when it comes to that stuff. And it really just mirrors many ways civil suit. But, you know, what it looks like is uh, there's an investigation to see if there's credibility to what's said. There's witnesses. There's even a trial. And you might say, isn't that over the top? Well, actually, it's for the protection of the accused. It's designed for that. And Jesus says here, and even that, if someone is found guilty, there's a process. In our church government, it begins with admonishment, an official word from the leader saying, you know, we're really worried about you. Please turn from this behavior. And if not that, it's going to be, we don't think you ought to come to the table of the Lord. You're suspended from the table of the Lord. Why? Because this table is about unity and repentance and grace. And this usually happens over months and months, even past a year. But then, Jesus tells us, it might end in excommunication. And he says, treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile. Now, Jesus is not against tax collectors and Gentiles. Matthew, the author of this passage, is a tax collector. One that Jesus loved and saved and brought into the church. What he's talking about is those that are opposed. And here we're just getting to boundaries, right? All of us practice these sort of boundaries, don't we? Maybe you've had the unfortunate circumstance in your family where there's a family member who has repeated destructive behavior, not only to themselves but to others. And at some point, it gets where the family has to say, you can't come around anymore. It's a form of discipline, hopefully to wake them up and help them see their need for community. And excommunication, though, doesn't mean someone's banished from church. In fact, you want the excommunicated person to come and worship in church because maybe their heart will get softened. And nor is it sentencing them to hell. Excommunication, in a way, is a theoretical judgment. It's saying, theoretically, if this person just continues in their life to be hardened and unrepentant, well, they're going to face judgment at the end. And this is what Jesus gets into with this somewhat mysterious verse where it says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. To bind is to forbid entry. To loose is to permit entry. So Jesus is saying this. When the church 
makes just judgments according to the law of God and the word of God, two things are true. The presence of the authority of Christ is there. The authority of Christ is present. He says in this passage, there I am among you. Now, many times this verse is quoted about prayer. When two or three people get together and pray, Jesus is there. That's really true, but it's not really the application here. The application is this, that the Lord will be with his church as they go through the agony of church discipline. He will be present. And I will tell you, and I know I speak for my brothers in the session, there is nothing more agonizing and draining and heart-wrenching than that process. With fear and trepidation. But there's a second thing that Jesus means That is that the Lord's will is actually being done. Again, when the church executes judgments according to God's law and does it rightly, it's really mirroring heaven. It's reflecting God's judgment, which ought to sober anybody up if things get to that point. And so, you know, and we have a category for this too. You know, sometimes you have a case where it's the U.S. government versus an individual. Right? And that, when that happens in court and the person is found guilty, the U.S. government has been satisfied. Well, God through his church is satisfied as his church executes justice. So that's the process. I know that's a lot of detail we went through. But I think it's important that we hear it. But let's move and close with the goal. At the beginning of Matthew 18, this passage, Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better uh, that, you know, he says, you'd rather have a millstone around your neck and drown in the sea. When he's talking about little ones, he's not just talking about kids, he's talking about his disciples. Which means, when we go through this process, we are to be, in our hearts, humble and going with great care for the brother or sister who has offended. Because they are, as we know, one of the little children, one of the ones that Christ loves. And there are three things to this goal that we'll look at. The first is the goal is relational reconciliation. The difference between what we often find in the world in this passage, the goal isn't to win It's to win your brother or sister. That's what he says, doesn't he? You'll have gained them. If you go to win an argument, you usually won't win the person. That takes a whole different sort of strategy, a different sort of humility. And this is our goal. And the reason it's our goal is because it's what God has done with us. Let's just go through a couple of those key words for a second and think about ourselves. I mean, when it comes to ourselves and God, the question isn't if we sin, it's when we sin. I mean, on a regular basis, right? I, I can't even hold, I can't even live up to the standards that I hold other people to. And neither can you. But the beauty of it is God isn't just uh, holding us on preferences. He's holding us to a truly righteous and loving law. Jesus would say all the laws in the Bible boil boil down to love God with all you got, love each other with all you got. Whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is beautiful, 
This is what he is holding us to. It's not if, it's when. There's not one of us here that fails to love. I appreciated Sam's confession during the confession. Each of us fails to love regularly. But then, what happens? What does the Lord do in light of that? Does he stay in heaven? This is the astonishing thing. The word go, he goes. He goes from heaven to earth. He goes from being a king to being a lowly servant. He goes to the cross where he takes judgment and shame upon offenders like ourselves. He goes. Jesus says that he is like the shepherd, the farmer that goes after the one sheep. He is like the father that goes after the lost son. When someone said, what is your purpose? He said, my purpose is to seek and save the lost. He came for you. He went. He went all the way for you. What? He came to reconcile you, to reconcile me. And he comes in a brotherly spirit, doesn't he? The father sends the elder brother to the children of God. And he comes in a private way. How many times, maybe you're experiencing this now in your life, where just the Holy Spirit in such a quiet way begins to talk to us about something. He begins to convict us about something. And the whole reason he does it is because he's trying to win you. He's trying to gain you back. If a brother and sister approaches you, and then some other brothers and sisters approach you, and then the church leadership approaches you, it's a rescue mission. God is trying to gain you back. And when that becomes real to us, that gospel, Matthew 18 becomes a matter of integrity. I no longer have a choice to just say, well, I know this friend is kind of in this bad way, or I know that, but I'm just going to, that's somebody else's job. There's no way we can do that. So the first goal is reconciliation. The second, these more briefly, the second is to become like Christ. Growth in Christ. I was recently listening to a sermon on this. It was recommended to me by Jackie, our counselor. And um, from uh, Pastor Dr. David Coffin in Virginia. And I listened to this sermon. The sermon was, uh, discipline is a means of grace. I was like, that's intriguing. And in it, he said two things that stuck to me. One was, he said, listen, for someone that is a follower of Christ, all the seeds of the fruit of the Spirit, love, patience, kindness, joy, all that list you find, all those seeds are already implanted in your heart. That's good news. Because maybe you think, well, I don't think I have what it takes to go to this person. It's already in your heart. But the only way that seed is going to grow is if it's called upon to be used. It has to be exercised to grow. And he, he said in this sermon, he posed this question, He said this, you are given a certain amount of conflicts in your life to invest in. A certain amount of conflicts God has given you to invest in to experience his transforming grace. Are you being a good steward of those conflicts? 
thought it was a very good question to think about. Because practicing Matthew 18 will likely lead to suffering. But the scripture tells us that the path to glory is through suffering. Which gets to the last point, the glory of God. I mentioned Alfred Poirier, who writes a lot about this. He wrote a book called The Peacemaker. And he said, many times in conflict, we ask a lot of questions like, uh, is this person going to admit what they did to me? Uh, How was I offended? Lots of stuff that happens. But he said, there's one question that someone who is a sincere follower of Christ ought to be asking, and that is, what is God's glory trying to show here? How is the glory of God on display here? What's he after? Um, I, I got to thinking about Joseph in the Old Testament. Many of you are familiar with that story. Talk about offenders, right? His brothers traffic him. He spends his 20s in prison, in 20, just unjustly. He, he's, he's been offended greatly. And yet... Um, he confronts his brother. God arranges that confrontation. I, I mean, maybe you can imagine just the emotion that's welled up over a decade of wounds and trauma. And if you read that passage, it's just very moving in the Old Testament. But he confronts them. And at the reconciliation, though, he says this. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He actually meant it for the salvation of this nation a famine's going on and God lifts Joseph up. But what in the world can enable you and I to say to our offender, you meant it? And, and on, by the way, it wasn't just, he wasn't digging at him because earlier he said, I'm going to take care of your children. You're going to eat at my table. What would enable you and I to say to an offender, you meant it for harm? But I forgive you, and God actually meant it for something greater. It might be you don't see it yet. It's going to be unveiled. A friend of mine, um, Wes King, who is a wonderful songwriter, wrote a song called Joseph's Troubling Me. Uh, And this is just part of it. He says, Joseph's trouble is trouble indeed. So hard to let go what hurts so deep. How quickly we forget God sees things we can't see yet. Well, there just might be some purpose in our pain. Joseph's trouble is such a troubling thing. I know it's not easy. This is a troubling passage. But if you and I are willing to trouble ourselves with biblical family conflict, we will see reconciliation and growth in our lives and the glory of God in a way that we haven't seen it before. This is what God intends the witness of the family of God to be. This week we have our week of prayer. And it might be during that prayer time, God impresses upon you, I need to go talk to somebody. And it might be you need to grab somebody there and maybe you you talk about it anonymously, but you say, I need to go talk to somebody. Um, Let's pray that God helps us to be the family of God. Father, Father, We thank you for the wisdom of your son. None of us would come up on this stuff on our own. Uh, We go the other way. We see it played out in our uh, not-so-flattering moments. 